0: on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. Patty, do you think you can ever live the life of a normal housewife now?
1: Yes, of course. You, why not?
2: Are you going to stay out of the uh, limelight? Uh yes. Out of your own choice.
1: Yes.
2: And what about the family? How many children do you want to have? Um,
1: about three. Thirty-nine,
2: <laughs> <laughs> <Give or take. laughs> Can I have um, the story of your romance, Patty, How did it all start?
1: Um. Well, we met on the set of hard Hard Day's Night when George and the others were filming it and I was chosen to play part of the school girl by Dick Lester Wolfe Shenton and... Um,
2: Good old Dick Lester Walter Sheen. <laughs> yes. Well, I've not been for them. And take it up from yeah, there, what happened then? Um, well, actually, I, tried, I asked Patty out as when we were making the film and she said no. Which <laughs> is very embarrassing at the time. <coughs> but it all worked out right in the end. And, um, yeah. In fact, I asked Patsy to marry me while we were making Hard Day's night. And so. No, I, thought, oh, I thought
1: he was joking. I thought, oh, poor boy, yeah. <laughs> He
2: doesn't really mean it. I'll pretend he hasn't said it. And it's taken you this long to convince him. No, not really. Um, I just thought I wanted to state my claim on her.
0: On the 21st of January 1966, roughly a year after Ringo's wedding, George Harrison was Beatle number three to tie the knot making Paul now the only bachelor in the group. George had met model Paddy Boyd on the set of A Hard Day's Night in 1964, where she had played the part of a schoolgirl on the train. The pair became an item not long after, and were wed less than two years later. The Beatles had already begun the new year in the studio on the 5th of January, but not at Abbey Road, and not to record new songs. Rather, they met at CTS Studios in London to re-record some of the tracks from their Shea Stadium performance in New York City the previous August, to improve the soundtrack of the television documentary before its release. With album number six, Rubber Soul, on worldwide release, and another concert tour planned in the summer, the Beatles wasted no time in heading back to Abbey Road Studios to begin work on album number seven a collection of songs which would not only change their musical directions, but would see revolutions in recording techniques that would change the ways in which popular music is captured to this day. The first song recorded would eventually be the last on the new LP and would undergo a major transformation before it was finished. It would also be the Beatles' most ambitious and adventurous recording to date.
3: John had this song which was all on the chord of C which in our minds was okay, like Indian music's all on one chord, it's a perfectly good idea. Um, I was wondering how George Martin was going to take it, because it was a bit of a radical departure, you know, at least we'd had three chords and maybe a change for the middle eight even, you know. Suddenly this was just John just strumming on C rather earnestly. Well, the
4: song, I think, was very much influenced by, you know, in those days the Indian music had come in to our lives, and the the way indie music just was all on one, uh, in one key, it didn't modulate. His idea. But, you know, he wanted to try a tune like that, that didn't change chords. Uh, And also because of um, some of the other influences, he had that Timothy Leary book, which was um, supposedly, uh, I think it was called a psychedelic experience, and it had some stuff that related to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and he wrote those words.
2: That's me and my uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead period. And the expression Tomorrow Never Knows was another of Ringo's, so I gave it a throwaway title because I was a bit self-conscious about the, the lyrics of Tomorrow Never Knows, so I took one of Ringo's malapropisms, which was like Hard Day's Night, and sort of to take the edge off the heavy philosophical lyrics.
0: With the working title of Mark One, Tomorrow Never Knows, recorded in Studio 2 on the 6th of April 1966, was at this stage a much sparser track than its eventual final incarnation. Recorded at a slightly faster speed, so that it would sound slower and heavier on playback, it featured Ringo beating out a hypnotic rhythm on his kit, George stabbing a single, heavily distorted C chord on the guitar, and John playing a four-note ostinato throughout on a Lowry organ. Once the backing track was completed in the first take, another drum overdub from Ringo was added, as well as John's vocals, which received some special treatment. George Martin explains.
5: He wanted his voice to sound like the Dalai Lama um, chanting from a hilltop. And I said, well, it's a bit expensive going to Tibet. Can we make do with it here? And I spoke to Jeff Rimerick, and he had a good idea. He said, let's try putting his voice through a Leslie speaker. Mm-hmm. And back again, and re-recording it, and I don't think anyone'd done that before, and that's what—that's the way we got his special effect on his voice there. <laughs>
0: Two more takes of the backing track were recorded, and with Take 3 marked as best for now, Tomorrow Never Knows was carefully set aside for work in future sessions. Now it was time for a contribution from Paul, a Motown-inspired track which, ostensibly sounded like an ode to a desired woman, actually revealed a very different muse. Having discovered marijuana in 1964, the Beatles had more recently begun to experiment with more mind-altering substances.
2: A dentist in London laid it on George, me and our wives without telling us at a dinner party at his house. He was a friend of George's and our dentist. And he just put it in our coffee or something, yeah. You know. The middle-class London swingers or whatever had all heard about it and they didn't know it was different from pot or pills. And they gave us it and he was saying, I advise you not to leave. And we thought he was all trying to keep us for an orgy in his house and we didn't want to know, you know. And we went out to the ad lib and these discotheques and you know, it was incredible things going on. And uh, all that's that's how it happened. We got out and went, went, and this guy came with us. He was nervous. He didn't know what was going to, What We were going crackers, you know. I mean, we did. It was insane going around London on it. And we thought when we went to the club, we thought it was on fire. And then we thought it was a premiere. Oh, no, we thought it was a premiere. It was just an ordinary light outside. We thought, shit, what's going on here, you know? And we were cackling in the street and then. You know, people were shouting, let's break a window, you know, we were just insane. I mean, we just had our heads and people had come up to me and we finally got, we got in the lift and we all thought there was a fire in the lift, it was just a little red light and we were all screaming like class, and it erupted all, all hysterical and we all arrived on the floor because this was a discotheque that was up a building, you know, and the lift stops and the door opens and we all go, ah! and we just see that it's the club and then we walk in, you know, sit down and we you know, and the tables elongating. I think we went to eat before that and it was like in the thing I'd read about Opium where the table suddenly, I suddenly realised that it was only a table like this, was four of us, around, but it went this long. And I thought, "Fucking, it's happening, you know. And then we went to the advert and all that and then some oh. singer came up to me and said, can I sit next to you? And I like, only if you don't talk, you <laughs> know, <And I'm> like, because <laughs> I just couldn't think. This, it seemed to go on all night. I can't remember the details. It just went on like that. And then George, somehow or another, managed to drive us home in his Mini. But we were going about 10 miles an hour. It seemed like a 1,000. And uh, Patty was saying, let's jump out and play football. You know, there's these big rugby posts and things like that. And I was getting all this sort of hysterical jokes coming out, like a speed, because you know, I was always on that. Too. It was like, oh, you know, and George was going, turn oh! And, you know, oh, yeah. God, it was just terrifying. <laughs> you know? But it was fantastic. But I really was...
3: Frightened of that kind of stuff because it's it's what you're taught when you're young, you know. hey, there's watch out for them devil drugs. So, um, so when acid came round, we'd heard that you're never the same. It alters your life and you never think the same again. And I think John was rather excited by that prospect. I was rather frightened by that prospect. <laughs> Just what I need, you know. He says, have some funny little thing where I can never get back home again." You know. Oh, geez, you know, may not be the greatest move. So I delayed, and I was seen to sort of stall a little bit, I think, within the group. It was, uh, you know, because of a lot of peer pressure. I mean, talk about peer pressure. The Beatles.
6: I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. Ooh, in that song. You didn't run, you didn't lie, you knew I wanted just to hold Uh. you And had you gone, you knew in time we'd meet again for I told Uh. you When I'm with you, I want to stay there If I'm true, I'll never leave And if I do, I know the way there. need your
1: love. I need your love.
6: I need your love. I
1: need your love. Somehow, some got
6: to get you.
0: 5 of Got To Get You Into My Life, recorded on the 7th of April 1966. Paul would later claim that the song was about marijuana, but John was probably more correct in recalling that by this stage, the Beatles were using LSD fairly heavily, and this was more likely to be what the song was about. The song was remade the following day, with a slightly different arrangement and feel. (coughs)
2: I was
6: alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find There Another road where maybe I could see another kind of
1: mind
6: There
0: a reconstruction of Take Eight of Got To Get You Into My Life. The next few days would see overdubs of additional guitars and vocals, and the song's distinctive brass section, the first time that horns were used on a Beatles recording, would be overdubbed in May. The 11th of April would see the beginning of George's first contribution to the new LP. Having been exposed to the sitar during the filming of Help in 1965, with subsequent use of the same instrument on Norwegian wood on rubber sole, George decided to go all out this time. Having recently become a member of the Asian Music Circle in London, a song with the working title Granny Smith was the first song of George's to be written specifically for sitar and Indian instrumentation.
4: Um, I didn't have too many songs they were more or less the ones I'd written. I've always had a couple of ones I was working on or thinking about. And later, in the later years, I did have a huge backlog. But in the mid 60s, I think, you know, I I didn't have too many.
6: Time is so short, and you one can't be born, but what you got means such a lot to me. They all day long, they love singing songs. They'll fill you in with all the sins you'll see.
0: An isolation mix of Love You Too. The basic track consisted of George on acoustic guitar and lead vocal and fuzz bass swells from Paul using a volume pedal. Take Six was marked best and completed with overdubs of Sitar, played by George himself, tambura, and Tabla, added by Anil Bhagwat from the Asian Music Circle. The song was now ready for editing and mixing, a radical departure in the Beatles' sound. Of course, as well as new album tracks, the Beatles needed a new single release, and a brand new song from Paul would provide the necessary material. The lyric sheet reveals that the words were written in the form of a letter from an aspiring novelist to a prospective publisher.
6: Okay, that's right. Hey, right Paul, it's it's the right is on. the One, two, three, four.
3: also.
0: Takes one and two of Paperback Rider. The instrumental backing tracks were recorded on the 13th of April, with vocals and bass added to take two the following day. Wanting to achieve a meatier bass sound than had been previously possible on Beatles records, engineers Ken Townsend and Jeff Emmerich experimented by using Studios 2 large playback monitor, known as the White Elephant due to its colour and size, as a microphone to capture the signal from Paul's bass amplifier the theory being that the larger diaphragm of the speaker would pick up the lower frequencies of Paul's Rickenbacker bass more effectively. It worked a treat, allowing a much punchier bass sound than ever before. Of course, every single needs a B-side, and if the A-side was Paul's baby, then the B-side definitely belonged to John. However, it was Ringo's drumming which would be the standout feature on the track. Ringo explains.
3: And there's something in the sound of the drums that you play. Is it, you detune them, don't you? They're, they're I, do. I gonna... take
2: them as low as I can get them. Mm. I've always loved the depth of the drums, and I've deadened them a lot. If you look at pictures of the Beatles playing, I'd have them tuned low, and I'd have tablecloths on them to take out any ring. I mean, which, which record are you most proud of your playing on? Well, there's too many. You know what I mean? I cannot say that, oh, that's better than that. The only thing I've always said is that uh, Rain is different.
3: I was exactly, I was exactly, the the record, the track that I was about to put you Well, you know, it's Because it's
2: it's a track which is led by the drums. It is, and I've never played, like, it's fast. Which is the B-side of paperback writing, so it's not one of the best-known tracks. No, but but it's, I've never played like that since, I don't think, because it was busy in its way. Well, you know, if if, if we're going, (laughs) when I go to do the fill, it's like, and in rain it was
0: like While the song's structure and instrumentation itself were not overly complicated its recording was more complex than meets the ear The use of vary speed or changing the speed at which the tape is run through the machine either in recording or in playback thus affecting the tempo and pitch of the track when played back would be heavily utilized on this track. First of all, the Beatles played the drums and guitars at a slightly faster tempo and were recorded at a slightly faster speed, sounding something like this. played back at normal speed, the effect gained was to make the instrumental backing sound much heavier and more lethargic, especially Ringo's drums. Once the backing track was complete, John added his lead vocal, this time with the tape slowed down during recording, sounding something like this.
6: If the rain comes, they run and hide their heads. They might as well be dead. If the rain comes, if the rain And when
0: played back at normal speed, John's vocal sounded slightly faster.
6: If the rain comes, they run and hide their heads. They might as well be dead. If the rain comes, if the rain comes.
0: With the basis of the track complete, what happened next? would be a major revelation. The first time I ever
5: gave John backwards sounds he was amazed it was on rain they'd gone out to have a meal and left us in the studio and I thought well that bit on the end which needs a bit of interesting sound if it's not a guitar we've got to do something and then I thought you know, perhaps we could take some of John's words and turn them round back to front and lace them in so I took a a phrase and tender (laughs) hand back to the front. to hear something, because I think it works quite well for the ending of Rain. Let me know what you think. And he listened to it. He said, bloody hell. He said, that's fantastic. What is it? I said, it's you. He said, come on, don't be silly. He said, no, really, what is it? Is it a synthesizer? I said, no, it's you. It's your voice backwards. Oh! And he was so flabbergasted, amazed, and wondered at it, and said, great. Can we do guitars like that? I said, yeah, sure you can. Drums? I said, yeah. Let's do it all. <laughs> and so I then had to put up with back guitars for the rest of my life.
2: Cherish now, near I can sing it now. <laughs> That's great. Right? So, uh, yeah, uh, that was the start. That was an, a gift of God, that one, of, of, of Jar. Jar. You know, he's the God of marijuana now, right? right? So Jar gave me that one you uh...
0: Whichever way you look at it, this was a considerable amount of effort to go to for a B-side, but the results would speak for themselves, and pave the way for future innovations and studio trickery for years to come. The next track to be tackled was one with more subtle drug references, mainly in the form of helpful advice as to who to see if you need a little pick-me-up. Dr. Robert is almost certainly Dr. Robert Freyman, a German-born medico who practiced in New York City and was a well-known speed doctor who helped the city's arty types get larger and larger quantities of amphetamines. Of course, the Beatles were no strangers to uppers, having used them extensively in Hamburg to get them through eight-hour sessions in the clubs there. But they were not directly clients of Dr. Robert himself. The basic track was completed in seven takes on the 17th of February 1966, and after the addition of vocals on the 19th, was edited down from nearly three minutes to just over two.
6: He'll pick you up, Dr. Robert Take a drink from his special cup, Dr. Robert Dr. Robert He's a man you must believe Helping anyone in need No one can succeed like Dr. Robert well, 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 you're feeling fine Well, 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 it'll
1: make you Dr. Dr. Robinson
0: Isolation mix of the master take seven of Doctor Robert, destined to be a standout track on the B side of the new album. John's next offering to the album, Your Bird Can Sing," has many theories attached to its meaning and title: whether a veiled dig at Paul in regards to his newly emerging diversity in musical tastes, a reference to the American group The Birds, or even a message to Mick Jagger about Marianne Faithful no one can be absolutely sure. However, we do know that John later dismissed the song as a horror and a throwaway. The 20th of April saw two takes completed. Here's the second.
6: Tell me that you got everything you want And your can sing that you don't get me You don't get me You say you've seen seven wonders And your bed is green But you can't see me You can't see me When your prized possessions Start to weigh you down Look in my direction I'll be round I'll be round You tell me that you've heard every sound there is And your bird can swing But you can't hear me You
1: can't hear me
6: Your bed is broken Will it bring you down? You may be awoken I'll be round, I'll be round You tell me that you've got everything you want And your bird can sing But you don't get me You don't get me
0: With the need to augment the vocals on take two, the Beatles rejected the temptation to use automatic double tracking, or ADT, to replicate their vocals, and instead opted to record a fresh overdub. Something or someone caused a giggling fit on the studio floor, which, despite trying hard to regain their composure, resulted in this more amusing vocal version from John and Paul.
6: Tell me that you've got everything you want And your bird can sing But you don't get me You don't get me <laughs> You
1: sing, 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 And sing But you, you, don't get <laughs> you don't see <laughs> me You can not <don't laughs> see <laughs> me <laughs>
6: <laughs> when, when your
1: prize
6: start to weigh down Look in my direction I'll be round, I'll be round You tell me that you've heard every sound there is And your bird can swing But you can't hear me You can't hear me <laughs> when your bike is broken, will it bring you down? You may be awoken. Be awoken. I'll, <laughs> be <around>. I'll be wrong. <laughs> I'll be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> be You don't get
1: me You don't get me
0: Well, that's it for this episode. Next time we'll rejoin the Beatles in Studio 2 as work continues on their groundbreaking seventh album. Until next time...